Hello, and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Naka Kondo, Senior Editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. In the last episode, we talked about how a Biden presidency might affect trade relations and businesses in Asia and U.S.-China relations. In this episode, we want to take a closer look at the potential impact on specific markets, Japan, where I'm based, and India. I'm glad to be joined by my colleagues at the EIU, Wakas Aidenwala, our lead analyst for Japan. Welcome, Wakas. Hello. Good day, Naka. Thank you for inviting me over for this podcast. And for a perspective from India, we're happy to have Ujas Shah, our analyst for India. Welcome, Ujas. Thanks so much for having me. Last but not least, for an angle on Biden's policies, we have Michael Frank, our senior analyst on public policy. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Naka. Good to be here. I'm based in Tokyo, Japan. And after the Biden win here in Japan, the sentiment has been generally positive, especially with anticipations around trade, trade agreements, uh, hopefully the U.S. is positioning itself back to global agendas, etc. So let me just ask you, Wakas, what kind of impact do you expect a Biden presidency to have on businesses in Japan? So just to give you perspective, uh, under Biden tra- presidency, you'll obviously the U.S. returning to more of a multilateral agenda or the U.S. trying to repair its relationships with its allies. Um, and co- by contrast, you had Trump in the previous post and even in Japan, you had Shinzo Abe. Now, they both had a very unique personal relationship, which Suga and Biden don't have. But the fact is that Suga and Biden both will pursue their relations based on mutual interest. So obviously the Japanese businesses have reason to cheer on that they won't be rather forced into trade agreements, how Trump actually wanted to reduce trade deficits with Japan and how he basically initiated a lot of trade agreements, which were potentially not in the best interest of Japanese businesses. So at least we can expect a future trajectory to return to more of a normal or rather business as usual, if I could put it that way. And on November 15th, Um, 15 countries in Asia, including Japan, signed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, said to be the largest free trade agreement in history. But the U.S. is not part of this agreement. Will it benefit industries in Japan? So I would say that for the RCEP, there are two sides of the coin, because, again, it's a very unique uh, aspect of, you know, the whole trading agreement in general. It covers one third of the world's population and roughly the GDP, too. So, yes, there is reason to be happy about such a multilateral deal. But you have to remember that, again, implementation will take years and years to come through. And there are certain sectors, for instance, within Japan, which will continue to benefit from certain protectionist policies, such as agriculture. So, yes, those are aspects where, you know, Japan can still improve upon. But having said that, this is one of the first two deals that Japan has entered, which also includes South Korea and China. So, yes, Japan has already got good trading relationships with them. But again, you know that historically, Japan and South Korea have had the differences, which was one of the reasons why getting a trilateral FTA between China, South Korea and Japan was a bit of an issue until last year when talks were not going through. So at least with the RCEP, they have a medium for them to improve upon and rather come closer in terms of their trading agreements even more. That sounds really positive. Now, interestingly, Ujas, India pulled out of this agreement last minute. What happened? Why did India opt out in the end? 
Yeah, so I mean, looking at this agreement from the India's point of view, if you look over the past 10 to 15 years, its trade deficit with ASEAN, Japan, South Korea and China have risen sharply. India already has a free trade agreement with ASEAN, Japan and South Korea, and hence its its decision not to join was firmly concentrated on the results of freer trade with China on, on the domestic manufacturing industry, which which was even before the pandemic ha- was, was not in a very good shape. India's main concern about the was about possible dumping that it would face from uh, other countries and what it wanted was specific rules of origin measures that would automatically kick in during a surge in imports. Uh, but it felt that the protection against the surge was inadequate uh, and it was possible for a circumvention of the rules of origin uh, measures uh, which could lead to dumping. Uh, and, and and the circumvention of the rules of origin measures would be possible by goods being routed, routed through different countries. Uh, so that was among the primary reasons why India chose not to join the deal. But it's it's not only that. It's uh, it, I mean, a large free trade agreement like RCEP also goes kind of against the view of Modi administration in general about free trade. And we have seen this over the past many years where the administration has tried to increase tariffs over various products to support the domestic industry in its efforts under the Make in India program. So I think these these are the two main issues why India kind of opted out to join the RCEP. I see. With India not a part of RCEP or CPTPP, how do you see a Biden administration taking forward trade relations with India? Yes, I mean, we expect a Biden administration to be to have a much more comprehensive view of its relationship with India compared to the current administration. And foremost, the increased stability in policy will be helpful. Uh, but more importantly, we see an unwinding of the trade relations that deteriorated under the Trump administration, where the Trump administration revoked the GSP benefits uh, for India and applied some uh, countervailing duties. Uh, the trade deal between India and the US, uh, and it, it would be a trade deal in the, between the India and the US that would unwind uh, these increase in tariffs. Uh, and, and the trade deal is largely ready if news reports are to be believed. And hence, this might be a low-hanging fruit that the Biden administration may look to achieve, especially as uh, the contentious uh, issues between India and the US in terms of trade is, is only a small number of goods of the bilateral trade. Uh, and hence, it's, it's to say that the, the bilateral trade relationship is not as contentious as uh, it might have been with other countries. Um, but at the same time, we also have to realize that the Biden administration has many other priorities that, that it will need to attend to, and that might delay in regard and that might delay things in regards to the improvement in trade relations with India. So, turning to Michael, how do you think these multilateral free trade agreements, such as RCEP and CPTPP, will impact the relationship between the U.S. and Asia in general? And what do you think the Biden administration will do to counter that? Or will they look at reinstating a bigger influence on Asian countries? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Joss. I think that trade agreements are just not a priority. Uh, in, in the U.S. right now, I mean, the, the, the number one item on the docket for the Biden administration is going to be getting the COVID-19 pandemic uh, back under control and distributing a vaccine. Uh, that that is far and away going to to take the most of of the the new government's uh, efforts and political capital over the next you know six six to twelve months. On the foreign policy front, um, again, there are other priorities that are that are more paramount. Climate is number one, and I would say maybe one B is uh, more structural, but rebuilding diplomacy. Um, it, it's we're only a couple years removed from. Uh, 
former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson gutting the State Department of its its um, its its human capital, particularly in uh, the upper echelons of diplomatic management, and that is going to be a Herculean effort that new Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is really going to have his hands full. However, I have to say that I'm skeptical about these arguments uh, around uh, the political capital um, being too being too great uh, for the Biden administration to take on uh, rejoining CPTPP in the first term. Uh, and for two reasons. One is that you have broad public support for free trade, including among Democrats who've seen the trade policies of the Trump administration and uh, they're having a bit of renaissance in their 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 view towards uh, the benefits of free trade. Um, the the second reason is that we have a good test case uh, in the U.S. Mexico Canada agreement, uh, which was essentially NAFTA 2.0 renegotiated and passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress. Uh, so so that that's a good 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 uh, test case why. Uh, the Biden administration may think that they, this, there's a broad public support for rejoining TPP. But at the end of the day, um, China is a foreign policy priority, the United States relationship with China. And while trade agreements for the U.S. have a relatively limited economic benefit, uh, particularly if you look at the countries in um, TPP, there are very few direct competitors. Probably Japan is, is the main competitor. Uh, but uh, it's it's going to have a relatively limited impact on the U.S. economy, which is is uh, far and away the most isolated in that grouping. Um, having said that, trade agreements in the U.S. have been conceived primarily as geopolitical strategies dating back 70, 70 years, and uh, TPP was no different. Joe Biden was part of the team that negotiated uh, TPP uh, in in the, the first half of the last decade primarily as a China containment strategy. So I, I, I'm more, more uh, bullish on P TPP's prospects and, and the U.S. rejoining than I think most commentators are these days. So two bilateral trade agreements were signed between the U.S. and Japan in 2019 and have been in effect since January of this year. These agreements cover tariffs and market access in some industrial goods and agricultural trade and rules on digital trade. Do you think that can help counterbalance the RSOP to some extent? Will Japanese companies be forced to choose sides between China and the U.S.? Well, that's exactly the point that I think, you know, RCEP is not a replacement for these types of agreements. It is in some ways for, for its scope remarkable in its lack of ambition because of how little it changes uh, trade governance. Um, and and you, you, you mentioned a really key part of that, digital trade. This is the next frontier for international trade governance, and uh, the U.S. and Japan have a very strong relationship, um, despite uh, the Trump administration's efforts to push Japan away, perhaps in the last four years. Uh, the, the alliance remains strong, and it's in these, these close bilateral relationships where I think you see the, the, the best chance for um, experimentation, really, on uh, new rules uh, governing digital digital trade. Uh, ultimately, I don't see Japan having to being forced to choose sides between China and the US, though there is some evidence that uh, Japan is is uh, 
constructing its industrial policy so that uh, they're making it clear which side they're on um, if, if, uh, if they are forced to choose. And a good example of that is uh, new policies designed around moving Japanese manufacturing companies out of China uh, and not just back to Japan in sort of a, you know, a protectionist nativist um, policy, though, though those do exist. But also there are even incentives for Japanese producers to move uh, manufacturing out of China to Southeast Asia. That's a new deal that, uh, that uh, Prime Minister Suga announced when he was visiting um, with uh, his counterparts in ASEAN a few weeks ago. So that, that this is going to be a very interesting relationship, but I, I don't think that, um, that uh, Japan is going to have to choose between uh, China and the United States anytime soon. While we're on this topic, um, speaking of influence in Asia, of course, Japan is the world's third largest economy and the fifth largest trading partner for the U.S., as well as a long-term military ally to the U.S. Um, how has the relationship between the U.S. and Japan evolved over the Trump presidency, in your opinion, Michael, and uh, what costs? Well, I think, you know, anecdotally, um, I think that this this experience has been disconcerting for, for a lot of uh, people in Japan who support the alliance and support that, that strong relationship that uh, for the for the first time in, in their lives, they feel like um, the U.S. is not a reliable partner. And I think the key, the key question that um, that will have to be resolved and one that 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 uh, President elect Biden is is keen on addressing is was the, the Trump administration's worldview uh, merely an aberration, an interruption of, you know, largely uninterrupted um, foreign and trade policy from the United States in the, in the post-war era. And uh, provided that uh, the Biden administration can take some, some con- concrete steps to shore up um, those misgivings, uh, you know, it's, it's not unlikely to, that uh, you see in the next few years uh, people in Japan feeling a bit more relaxed that the, the Trump administration was that historical aberration and not a, a sea change, uh, a paradigm shift. Well, I definitely Naka agreed that uh, what Michael just said, because for a lot of Japanese, it's going to be a breath of fresh air and a sigh of relief uh, to see a new president in the White House, because how the way uh, Trump actually was focusing on reducing the trade deficit with Japan was obviously concerning for Japanese businesses. Um, some of his hawkish policies also had other impacts on Japanese uh, mindset because Trump wanted Japan and other allies like South Korea and Germany to, to actually increase the payment they pay to for hosting the U.S. forces on their countries. Now, again, that's a major concern because besides being a major trading partner, the U.S. is also the major security ally for Japan. So here definitely is going to be one aspect where we see new turning point under Biden presidency. Yeah, and, and uh, just to add to that, I mean, I think Wakas brings up a good point. It, it's important to to separate out the you know the the trade policy and the military policy on some level, because if you look, you know, historically, um, the U.S. And, and Japan actually fought a trade war in the eighties. Um, and I think it was in 1987 that the U S had instituted a, a 100% tariff on, on cars and, and auto parts coming into the United States from Japan, which is, which is obviously far, uh, far larger, um, 
tariff uh, than uh, than the U.S. currently has on Chinese goods. So there have been trade tensions in the past, and the U.S. and Japan have always been able to work through them precisely because uh, they have an interest given the, the military relationship. So um, th- this effort to get U.S. allies to pay more for their own defense does predate Trump, though he he made that argument in a uh, rather unrefined way. But this is something that that even President Obama was speaking about during during his presidency. And the question is, can you just make that incremental change uh, so that everybody actually feels uh, the relationship is more robust, more resilient? Uh, and and uh, Japan does seem to be willing to to take on a greater greater responsibility for its own defense as well. So it's possible that you could um, be able to, to, to navigate those waters. So Japan, as you know, has a new prime minister, uh, Yoshihide Suga. He's been in the role since, I guess, September 2020, so very recent. Uh, will the relationship between the U.S. and Japan change under Biden and Suga, you think? Yeah, I think if the, my my takeaway the last four years is that uh, the the relationship is quite resilient, um, you know, despite all of the um, the policies the last four years, um, the personal relationship between uh, Abe Shinzo and, and Donald Trump was was quite warm. Um, conversely, you know, if you have better policies, but even even if Joe Biden and and Prime Minister Suga don't necessarily um, strike up that same type of chemistry, uh, there's there's reason to believe that you know the relationship is going to going to continue to get better. I definitely agree with that. Yes, uh, Suga and Biden don't have the personal rapport that uh, Trump and Abe did. But uh, it's also going to be definitely more based on how the mutual interests now are going to be in the same direction. Not that they were very different in the past uh, era, but again, at least now we'll expect the White House to pursue more of a diplomatic policy, which is in tune with U.S. foreign policy for the past few decades with Japan, at least. Um, again, definitely they are countering or trying to counter the impact of the desert of China, but Japan obviously has a more fine line to play given how big of a trading partner China is. Having said that, again, yeah, one thing to note will be that Abe was the longest serving prime minister Japan has had. Suga might not be able to fill that role in because, again, there are rumors that Japan might again be returning to a phase of revolving door of prime ministers. Uh, we don't think that will be happening anytime soon, but that's a risk that will remain perennial to Japanese politics now, especially as how the factional politics play within Japanese prime minister's role about how different factions within the ruling LDP party often have differences in interests as well. So one of Suga's challenges will be to ensure that his own political stability within Japan remains strong as well, so that he can actually pursue a policy that he envisions for Japan's future for the time being at least. And turning to India, how is a Biden presidency viewed in India, Ojas? What are business owners and the general public's opinions about the election outcome? Yeah, so the mood for uh, mood about the Biden presidency in India has been generally positive, I would say. Um, you know, many businesses are looking forward to a more stable trade policy and, and even an improvement in trade relations. Um, further, a less stringent U.S. visa policy that is expected under uh, a Biden administration is also a positive for the Indian IT industry, which has a large presence in the U.S., uh, and this uh, less stringent U.S. visa policy would also further support the educational market that the U.S. presents to Indian students. 
Um, as for the civil communi- uh, community, uh, it is looking forward to a Biden administration that is much more involved with uh, domestic issues in India, uh, which they feel have been uh, quite regressive under uh, the Modi administration. Uh, but in general, I would say that India expects the same strategic support that they saw uh, in a Trump administration, but also an improvement in other aspects of the relationship under a Biden administration. And how do you see the U.S. and your relationship evolving under a Biden presidency, especially given how the U.S. increasingly sees India as a counterweight to China in the subregion? And will that have any implications for the businesses in India? Yes, indeed. So the U.S.-India relationship is primarily div- driven by the U.S.-China competition. And this is this is different from the past where the U.S.-India uh, relationship was hyphenated with Pakistan, which I think the Trump administration has been successful in uh, dehyphenating uh, the relationship with Pakistan. But it is, again, uh, you know, to say hyphenated uh, with China now. So Trump's approach under the America First uh, policy until now was to leave India to its own devices but at the same time project its largely strategic support for India in terms of its dispute with China. But the Biden administration sees the U.S. Ex- uh, sees the U.S. exerting its power not only on its own, but through its alliance. And we have seen Biden say this uh, many times when he says that we only make up 25% of the world's GDP, but with our allies, we make up about 50%. And hence, having that higher bargaining power is, is the way to go forward uh, with countering China. And I think this will be central to how uh, the U.S. will be more keen under a Biden administration for India to take a stance on various issues where it wants to counter China. And this will challenge the Indian diplomatic establishment's inertia on its policy of non-alignment, its long-standing policy of non-alignment. And so while India would prefer to maintain its strategic autonomy, uh, it will become harder under a Biden administration. And that, coupled with the India-China border clash that we saw in June, uh, which which automatically pushed India towards China uh, towards the US. Uh, I think these factors will possibly lead to a permanent increase in India-China tensions. And so, do you see human rights issues in India negatively affecting the bilateral relationship under the new administration? Yeah. So under under the Modi administration, uh, India has seen a deterioration in democratic principles. And that can be seen with the abrogation of Article 370 on Kashmir, uh, which has been seen as a crackdown for more than a year now and divided up the province of Kashmir to be ruled from the center rather than a local government. Uh, It it can be also seen in the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is widely seen as uh, discriminatory to Muslims in the country. And there has already already been a lot of criticism that has been faced by India on both of these issues that has especially come from members of the Democratic Party in the U.S. but so, yes, this is a thing that's on the mind for many Indians. But I think there are a couple of things uh, that, that we should look at here. The first is uh, that the Biden administration itself, a democratic administration in the U.S., uh, itself will act as a deterrence uh, for Modi to take forward really divisive policies. And especially as both countries do need each other for the national interests, we think that they will try to walk the narrow path of not letting the issues, uh, the human rights issues come at the cost of the improvement bilateral relationship. But the other thing to note here is also that uh, Modi's policies that I mentioned before were all policies in the manifesto. And there really aren't any more divisive policies that uh, that, that, that are left to be implemented. Uh, and I mean, I think this, this too will be, uh, I mean, this too will be really helpful in terms of uh, not facing more criticism from from the U.S. in terms of human rights. 
And that's the end of this episode. Thank you, Wakas. Thank you for having me over today. Thank you, Ujas. Thank you for having me on. And thank you, Michael. Thanks, Naka. So for more discussions like this, stay tuned and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platforms so you don't miss future episodes. If you're interested in the EIU's analysis on the U.S. election's impact on Asia, have a look at the links in the show notes. And if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of our work, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit. <laughs>